Good morning, church. My name is Dustin. If you don't know me, I'm on staff here at South Point. Uh, We're going to be continuing on in our Upside Down series that we've been in these past several weeks as we look closely at the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus preached. And this morning, we're just going to jump right into it. We're going to be reading the passage that Jim has already read for us once this morning. It comes in Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 7 that talks about the ways in which God will bless us, and also Jesus introduces what we know to be the golden rule. It says this, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? For if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And for me, it's like, you know, at first glance, it feels like Jesus adding the golden rule at the end of this passage. It almost feels like an afterthought, doesn't it? Like, Jesus goes through this long piece, this this piece full of illustrations and talking about how if you ask and seek and knock, that God will bless you. And then it kind of feels like he just tags the golden rule on to the end. Almost feels like a mistake, but but we, we know that Jesus doesn't make mistakes and everything is intentional that he does. And so I'd like to unpack together how these two seemingly different ideas, ask and God will bless you and do unto others as you would have them do to you. I'd actually like to explore how these two ideas are actually closely intertwined and not disconnected at all. Let's pray, and then we're going to get into it. God, I pray that you just bless these few minutes that we share together right now. I know that what we don't need is just another talk, just another sermon. I know that what we do need is you. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit rests on this place and open our eyes and ears and hearts to whatever it is that you have to say to us today through your scripture. Allow us to hear your word clearly, God, I pray that you speak through me again. We need you. In your name, in your name alone. Amen. Do you guys remember what we said at the very beginning of this series about these things that Jesus would teach? We emphasize strongly that these instructions from Jesus are not simply going to be instructions. We emphasize that these words of Jesus are not simply going to be things to add to your to-do list. That these words of Jesus are not simply designed for behavior modification, to get you to live a moral life and do all the right things. If you were with us all those weeks ago, I hope that rings a bell. Because this morning it's extremely important as we read these words of Jesus talking about doing unto others as you'd have them do to you, it's important that you understand that these words are not just Jesus telling you how to live. And there's really one big reason for that, and that's When it comes to the golden rule of treating other people the way that we'd like to be treated, we can't do that. That's really an impossible task under our own power. Because this is not Jesus saying, do this when you can do this some of the time. This is Jesus saying, do this every interaction with all the people you encounter, even the people you hate, even the people who betray you live this way. And we're just not good at that. Our world kind of revolves around us. I'll give you a a, a prime example. If I'm late to something, 
if I'm late to something, well, why am I late? Well, I'm late because my kids are crazy and I got caught up with work and I stretched myself too thin and traffic was crazy and my tire was leaking and my dog pooped on the carpet. Like all of these things have happened. You know, I have plenty of reasons why I'm late. None of those reasons, by the way, have anything to do with the fact that I'm walking in with an iced coffee from Dunkin'. Completely unrelated. Rhode Island, right? My lateness is justified. Why is my lateness justified? Because I know myself. I consider myself. I know me. I, I had every intention of being on time, and I'm not a lazy person, and I value other people's time. I just made a mistake, and I shouldn't be judged or labeled for it when I'm late. But when you are late, when you are late, and I have to sit an extra 10 to 15 minutes twiddling my thumbs or making small talk with Gerald or Louise, sorry if that's your name, tried to think of names of people that I did not know. We all know the kind of people I'm talking about, though. But when you are late and it has inconvenienced me, well, the reason you're late is because you are lazy and inconsiderate, and you don't value other people's time, and oh my gosh, are you carrying in an iced coffee from Dunkin' right now? You see what I'm talking about? And that's just a silly example, but how are we when it comes to the big life stuff? And so I, I don't care what anyone says. No one is out here treating other people the way they want to be treated all the time, and no one is granting anyone else the type of grace that we grant ourselves. Now, we might have a good day every now and then, but we are the star of our own show. We're the center of our own universe. Can we help it? You tell me. But all of that is to make my original point that if you don't understand that Jesus is bringing up the golden rule, is this is not him simply telling you to live this way. And if you just take these words and try to make them your life motto or mantra, you are going to fail at it, and there's more to it. And so if we aren't supposed to be just taking this and running with it and trying to make it happen under our own power, then why is Jesus talking about it? And that's a good question, and, and that's going to bring us back to the beginning of the text. Read this again. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for, a, ask him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And just to make sure we're reading this correctly, we also just need to clarify what Matthew was talking about when he says good things, that God will give good things to those who ask him. Because what's good to me might not be good to you. And what's good to us is very likely not what is good to God. And so... Before we start opening up the can of worms that all you have to do is ask God for a Mustang and he'll give it to you, or all you have to do is pray that you hit the lottery and eventually you'll hit it, these are not the types of good things that God is, or that Matthew is talking about. You know how I know? Well, I know because I know probably a thousand committed Jesus followers who have prayed to hit the lottery. And a lot of those Jesus followers probably wrote out their full list of all the generous humanitarian things they were going to do with the money, and they presented it to God. God, here's my plan. And as far as I know, none of them ever hit the lottery. And you, and you know, it's not because 
They didn't actually plan to spend the money on other people. It's not because their hearts weren't in the right place, and it's not because they didn't pray hard enough or have enough faith. It's because these aren't the types of good things that Jesus was talking about. Because the things that we, as a society, consider good, well, Jesus understands that they're temporary garbage. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, you'll remember that. The things that the world says will save us and make us happy actually won't save you or make you happy. The world lies. Go figure. And so let's throw out that philosophy before anyone starts preparing their wish lists of worldly things. The truth is Jesus is pointing at something deeper than that. Jesus is pointing at something spiritual. And I know that that might not sound exciting to everyone. You know, there's a reason why these prosperity gospel churches are packed so full that it's standing room only. Because, of course, we'd like to believe that if you pray hard enough and if you, you have enough faith that God will make you rich and keep you healthy. Like, that sounds great. But what you have to understand is that Jesus is aiming at something deeper than that. The plans that Jesus has for you go far beyond some simple worldly success or comfort. You see, Jesus is aiming at the part of you that lasts forever. Jesus isn't just aiming at your life. He's aiming at your soul. Jesus is aiming at the part of you that's still going to be around when money is no longer useful. The part of you that's still going to be around when worldly health is no longer a factor. The part of you that's still going to be around when all our physical possessions have rotted and crumbled into dust. I mean, you want to talk about big picture How small is God if all he can do is make you rich or keep you healthy? And how small is our picture of him if these are the only kinds of things that we bring to him? Like, don't you guys understand that God wants to revive you? Don't you understand that God actively wants to pour his spirit, like, into your heart and into your life? Don't you understand that the emptiness and the loneliness and the hurt and the heartbreak and the anxiety and the depression and the pain, that those things were never supposed to be normal for you? Don't you understand that God wants to radically rearrange your life and lift you up out of that mess, that he wants to break the chains of shame and guilt and remorse and regret and show you how much more there is to life? These are the good things that Jesus is talking about. You know, you know where I think we get it wrong as Christians? I think too many Christians are under the impression that heaven is the goal. I think that too many Christians believe that heaven is the prize. And they believe that we're going to experience great things one day, but until that day comes, all we can basically do is endure the hurt and the heartache while we wait heaven and the thing is if this is your mindset you're going to find yourself just accepting brokenness while you wait for heaven and actually it's even worse than that because it's not that we just accept brokenness but in reality we try to numb our pain or distract ourselves away from the brokenness with worldly trash while we think fondly of heaven down the road Like, we just accept that things are going to be horrible right now. Just accept that things aren't going to feel good or be good. And when you think this way, instead of 
pursuing God's goodness in this life, which he wants you to do, you're going to find yourself using social media or alcohol or porn or sex or relationships or whatever else it is to distract you or numb your pain while you look fondly ahead at heaven. It's like, you know, I've been guilty of it too. We just accept it. Like, man, I'm, I'm just going to have anxiety and depression until I die. It's just the way it is. Like, I, I'm just not meant to be fulfilled, I guess. Like, I, I'm just always going to be lonely. Or I, I have an anger problem. I'm just always going to be angry. And then we look ahead to heaven like that's where all of our hope is. Yeah, life is horrible. But one day in heaven, it's going to be great. Yeah, I feel emptier than I ever have in my life, but one day in heaven, it's going to be better. Listen, heaven, yes, heaven is going to be awesome, but our goal is not heaven. Our goal is Jesus. We're not putting our hope in a place, guys. We're putting our hope in a person, and his name is Jesus. And this Jesus has every intention of you experiencing peace and hope, and love, and fulfillment, and joy in this life. Like, yes, the brokenness and the heartbreak, yeah, you're going to have some of that, but that is not supposed to be your default state of existence. You're not supposed to set up camp there and live there. Jesus said that he came so that we might have a life and live it to the fullest. Jesus actually never once said that he came so that we'd all get to heaven someday. I don't know if you knew that. The Bible never says that heaven is the goal, but it says an awful lot about seeking God in this life. Check this out. These are just a few verses that talk about seeking God in this life. In Matthew it says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you in this life. In 1 Chronicles it says, seek the Lord and his strength Seek his presence continually in this life. In Proverbs, it says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me, not just in heaven, in this life. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Psalm 34 says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing in this life. And James, it says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And in Amos, it says, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, like in this life. Like, do you guys see this? It's not about heaven. Yes, you will get to heaven because of what Jesus did, but Jesus didn't die to get you to heaven. Jesus died to get you to him. And in him, you'll find all the things that you so desperately desire and crave in this life. Life, hope, love, fulfillment, joy, peace, all of these things that we look for in other things, we find them in him. They're not reserved for heaven. Jesus wants to give that to you now, but you're only going to find it in him. And until we start numbing our pain or distracting ourselves with worldly things, until we actually start to pursue him in this life, we're going to miss it. Jesus is calling to you right now. That's why he says in John, Jesus says this about eternal life in the book of John. He says, and this 
is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It doesn't say, and this is eternal life, heaven. This is eternal life, to know God and to know Jesus and be known by him and loved by him. It's not about heaven. It's not about just living forever. It's all about Jesus. You see, heaven isn't going to be great because of the golden streets and the no pain and the no tears and the no death. That's, that's good. But heaven is going to be great because that's where Jesus is. And there are going to be no tears and no pain and no death and no hurt because those things don't exist where Jesus is. And hell's not going to be terrible because of the fire and the gnashing of teeth and all these other things. Hell's going to be terrible because God's not there. And that's why all those things happen there because that's where Jesus isn't. And I'm sorry if life has beaten you down so much that you've forgotten how amazing Jesus is. And I'm sorry that you feel like you have to numb your pain with worldly junk because you forgot that Jesus has a greater plan for your life. And I'm sorry if things have gotten so bad or complacent for you that you hear the truth of the gospel and it just bounces off of you instead of like filling you up and lighting you up from the inside out. But you can hear the call of Jesus Christ, seek me, knock on the door, like ask me and bother me and don't leave me alone, like don't stop bringing me everything you've got and I will meet you there and I'll show you what a full life looks like. I'll show you a love so profound and unimaginable that the circumstances of the world and the circumstances of your life won't be able to touch it. Like, you know Jesus, and you're poor, you're going to feel rich. You know Jesus, and you have cancer, you will know strength. You know Jesus, and experience heartbreak, that's okay. You'll still have love in your life. You know Jesus, and experience anxiety, you're going to know peace. And we have to stop letting the truth of the gospel bounce off of us. And instead, we have to start letting the brokenness of the world bounce off of us because we have Jesus. Ask and seek and knock, and you will find life in Jesus. These are the good things that he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. How do we ask and seek and knock? Well, Peter, the Apostle Peter, lays it out really perfectly in his second letter. Peter puts it this way. He, sa he says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Basically, meaning because of Jesus' pain and heartbreak and loneliness and anxiety is no longer your default state of existence, but instead you get to know the God of the universe and have him pour into your life and be present in your life. So it says this, Peter says, for this very reason, and this is how you ask and seek and knock, says for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Hold on to that phrase, supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now this phrase, supplement your faith, supplement your faith means everything that you do after you give your life 
to Jesus. It means that, yes, your faith alone in Jesus will save you, but if you want to experience everything that he has for you in this life, you pursue him through these means. It's this constant pursuit of him. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These are not just a to-do list. Jesus is saying you chase after me by doing these things. These are the ways we chase after Jesus, that we spend time with him, that we spend time reading about him, that we spend time trying to live as he lived and love as he loved. And as we do these things, we get to know him better. We continue peeling back the layers of who he is and what he desires for your life. And then Peter finishes by saying this. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can become ineffective or unfruitful. I don't know if you knew that. Maybe you're experiencing that now. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities, whoever doesn't pursue Christ, whoever doesn't supplement their faith is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, meaning chase after Jesus, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Meaning when you're not pursuing Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're saved or not, your life is going to drift until eventually you drift so far from the grace that you once knew that eventually you're going to be just as empty and broken and lost and hopeless as people who don't even know Jesus. Maybe you've experienced that. I have experienced that. And the truth is, we're always going either one way or the other. You're either going towards Jesus or you're going away from him with every decision that you make. There's no standing still. And so supplementing your faith, asking, seeking, knocking, it means consciously and intentionally making sure that no matter how many times I get distracted or how many times I fall away, that I'm continually pointing my compass back at him and committing to following after him. And as you do that, Jesus says the Father's so good. The Father's so good that he honors our pursuit, that he doesn't let you waste your time. He gives you these good things, this fulfillment in life. And Jesus says even the best parents, even the best parents, I consider myself a pretty good parent. Jesus says even the best parents, the one who love their kids selflessly and provide everything for them and spoil them, that in comparison to the way God loves and the way God offers himself to his kids, that even the best parents are terrible, evil even. Because what God offers truly satisfies and fulfills and strengthens and brings life. And so that brings us back to the golden rule. The doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you. You see the reason why these two seemingly different ideas are connected? That you seek after God and he'll bless you and then do unto others as you'd have them do to you. The reason why these aren't disconnected and are actually intertwined is because you can't love other people the way that God wants you to unless you know him and you know his love first. You have to be fulfilled by God before you can love other people the way that he's called you to. And if we're trying to do it by our own power and our own discipline and our own ability, we're never going to be able to love other people the way that God wants us to. And it really boils down to one big reason why, and the reason is we're needy. We're just needy. Like as human beings, we're crippled by codependency. Like we find our value and our satisfaction and our fulfillment in other people. 
I'm not just talking about on social media, although that does have a place. I mean like all of it. Like in your friendships, what do people always say? I don't have time for people who don't have time for me. I'm not going to break my back for people who won't even bend a little for me. You know what that's called? That's called conditional love. I reserve my love for people who prove they are worthy of it by loving me. What about romantic relationships? What's everybody looking for? Well, everyone's looking for the person that will give them their Jerry Maguire moment, right? You complete me. They're looking for the person that will make your life great. Like, yeah, I've been miserable forever, but now I found you, and you're going to fix it. Same thing we do with our kids. How many times have you heard it? My child saved my life. They saved me. What are we really saying? We're really saying my life didn't have meaning until I met this little person. I didn't really know love until I met this little person. I'm sorry, this is going to offend some of you guys. That's way too much pressure to put on a child. You know that being someone's pride and joy is extremely stressful? Like there are 40-year-olds in therapy right now because they were so afraid to let their parents down or break their parents' heart. Still dealing with that. We're needy. And then when people don't show up for us, it makes it easier for us to throw them out with the trash. Like, I can make new friends who are actually there for me. Or, you know, I can cheat on my spouse and leave them for someone who actually meets my needs. Or if I'm a parent, I can send passive-aggressive texts to my kids about how I never hear from them and they don't visit me enough. Needy. That's why we're doomed if we try to live out the golden rule on our own, we're way too needy. And so what does a relationship in pursuit of Jesus do for us? It meets all of our needs. The love that you're trying to find in everyone else, the satisfaction that you're trying to get from other people, the purpose you're trying to find in everything else, the satisfaction, and like all these things, the joy, fulfillment that you're trying to leech out of other people, Jesus says, man, I'll give you all that. I can give you that. Jesus will make you a person who is not so needy. You see, without Jesus, without Jesus, you're a drain. Without Jesus, you are a drain. You're never satisfied. Doesn't matter how much people give to you, doesn't matter how much you have, it barely lasts you any time, and then it's gone and you need more. Why do people who have seemingly perfect lives cheat on their spouses and ruin their families because they're drained. They're drains. It doesn't matter what their family does. It doesn't matter what their spouse does. They'll never be fulfilled. They always need more. And then if people don't continually show up for you and keep pouring into your life, the water runs out and you get dry and miserable and resentful and you start looking for other ways to fill yourself up. This isn't just marriage. This is everything. We do it with our friends too. Well, they never call. Forget about them. I'll find people who will pour into my life. Drain. But Jesus says in John 14, he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. You won't be needy. You won't be a drain. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Did you catch it? What Jesus offers. Not a full cup. Not even like a bathtub filled to the tippy top. 
spring. You go from a drain to a spring. Are you catching the imagery here? Drain to spring. Not only do you stop sucking the life out of other people and stop needing them to feel satisfied, but you actually become a person who's so fulfilled and you have so much love and joy and peace in your life that it starts bleeding out to the people around you. Let's What's David say in Psalm 23? He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. In Jesus, we can find not only everything we need, but extra so that it leaks out into our life, into the people around us. This is going to sound crazy, But do you guys know when me and my wife's marriage is at its absolute best? It's when we don't need anything from each other. When she doesn't need me and I don't need her. And that may sound crazy to you. That may sound like, man, I can't believe you think so little of your wife. But actually, I think so highly of my wife that I don't want her to feel the pressure of having to make me happy. You know how hard it is to keep a human being happy? It's impossible. And so if that's the expectation that I'm putting on her or my kids or my family or my friends, I am setting them up for a job that they aren't equipped to do. I'm setting them up for failure. But you see, on the days when I pursue Jesus well and he begins to reveal the truth to me and I understand that this God that created everything, like he sees me and he knows me and he loves me and like there's a purpose for my life, and Jesus died for me, and the Spirit of God, it lives inside of me, and I used to be dead, but now I'm alive, and God, you've welcomed me into your family and into your kingdom, and I used to be nothing, but now I have everything in you, and Jesus, in you, I have everything. You are truly better than everything, and all of a sudden, I become fulfilled and satisfied, and I'm full, and all of my needs are met, and now Now I can walk into the relationships in my life and I'm no longer a drain. I'm a spring. And I can pour into people, especially the people that I love, in such a different way. Like I can show up for them in a way that doesn't depend on on how they show up for me. And so my wife, she can have a bad day. It doesn't change how I love her. My kids, my friends, they can let me down. But because I have everything I need in Jesus, I can still show up for them. And for the record, I am in no way perfect at this. I fail at this all the time, but I have experienced it. And in those seasons, I am far and wide the best version of myself. I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better friend. And then like this grace and love that fills me up, it actually starts to extend out to strangers and people that I don't even know. I find myself needing to show up for people and love people and show them kindness, whatever it looks like, because it can't be contained in here. It's too good. You see, the real secret to the golden rule isn't even that we would love other people the way that we want to be loved. The real secret is that we can love other people because Jesus has first loved us. That's why Jesus says in John, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How did Jesus love us? How, how did Jesus live out the golden rule? Well, Jesus allowed the Father to treat him 
the way you deserved to be treated so that the Father could treat you the way only Jesus deserves to be treated. That's the message of the gospel. And it's not fair, it's not logical, and it's not just by the way we understand justice, but it's true. You see, Jesus isn't simply introducing the golden rule. Jesus is the golden rule. The truth is you deserve pain. We deserve heartbreak and death and separation from God because of our sinful nature. And yet, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we receive grace and forgiveness and love and joy and peace that doesn't make any sense to anyone else. And because of this, when we supplement our faith by pursuing Jesus and we truly embrace this stuff, it will affect your life, it will affect your relationships, and the way that you love the people around you, it will look abundantly different than the rest of the world. And that's my prayer for you, that's my prayer for this church. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that in you we can find everything that we need. And I know there may be people in here that are wrestling with that, struggling with that, because we've been so programmed to seek out satisfaction in all these different worldly things. We don't have to compartmentalize our joy with you. We don't have to compartmentalize our satisfaction, and we don't even have to wait for heaven to receive these things. You want to give us a fulfilled life right now. God, I confess my own shortcomings when I sought any love or joy or peace in other things and forgot that it's always been you. I just confess the own moments of my life when I put that pressure on the people that I care about most not fair to them, God. And so I pray that you allow me to grasp this grace that you offer so freely so that I can pour it out to those who are around me. I pray the same for this church, God. I pray this church is a spring that is so full of your love and your grace and your mercy that it starts to spill out into these neighborhoods around us, into our families and our friend groups, because we have so much in you that we can't help but to give it away. God, I pray the message of the gospel sticks in our hearts and our minds and our spirits as we walk out of this place, whether it's to lunch or to go take a nap or to go do whatever it is that we just cannot get you out of our heads and how amazing you are. Jesus, we love you. Lift all these things up to you. Pray in your name and your name alone. Amen.